Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Thanks for being with us today, folks. I hope you have um, gained some information that helped you make uh, better decisions and uh, information about this Article 5 convention. We have uh, Roger Eck, Northern Maine Landman, coming right up here momentarily. Uh, Support the folks that support this station. We would love to go 24-7. If we had enough support, it would work. Thanks for being with us today and support the folks that support us. Natural Living Center in Bangor, great big health food store, has everything from soup to nuts, granola, beans, grains, all of that stuff, plus supplements, best supplement department in the state. So give them a call, 990-2646, Natural Living Center in Bangor on Longview Drive. And in Caribou, John Caveman, Countywide Vacuum. John sells the perfect vacuum and services the rest. John has a wall of bags. He'll take some bags down and send them any place in the country. Give him a call, 207-492-1492. 207-492-1492, John Cave and Countywide Vacuum. And if you're uh, getting ready for the big storm coming up, get up some supplies, get some extra gas in the cans, fill the sled, fill the snowblower, all that stuff. Stop at Willett's Variety on Sweden Street in Caribou. They've got everything you need to uh, get ready for the storm, stock up, get a little bit to go, and uh, be ready to do it. That's Willett's Variety, Sweden Street in Caribou, open 24-7, 365. And now I don't see Roger Eck in there yet. I'm sure he's on his way trying to get in. Thanks for being with us. Be, be thinking about this Article 5 convention, folks. It's coming it's been pushed for years and years and years. Um, Hal, Hal Shortliff will be in the county seventeenth uh, or eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth, and twenty-first, and so you can um, get some more information based on that. He will be throughout the county. If you want to know more about where, let me know. And uh, then also on the seventeenth, the lawyer that was just being interviewed by Dottie and Phil will be on in Augusta at the Hall of Flags on the 17th. And so there's plenty of information available out there. Avail yourself, learn, make informed decisions, and go from there. And we have 
Roger Eck, the Northern Maine Landman, will be here momentarily. Good morning, Jack. This is the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ 94.7 in Monticello, and all the way down to Danforth. 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Today is Friday the 13th. Yes, indeed. I'm not superstitious. People tell me because of my background that, uh, boy, you sure are lucky. I say, I don't believe in luck. They say, what do you mean? I believe in divine providence. I'm not superstitious. I don't buy lottery tickets. I don't know about people looking the paper to see what their fortune is and all that kind of stuff. That's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo that's had nothing to do with with, uh, reality. So, today is Friday the 13th, 2015, and uh, it's going to, people that are superstitious are probably going to say, oh, here it comes again, because we are under a blizzard watch from tomorrow, it's 7 p.m. tomorrow evening, so we got we got tomorrow, we're all set for the day, and until February 16th, which is Monday, at 7 a.m., we've got a 36-hour blizzard watch. I'll get into that in a minute. But for today, sunny and cold, high near 8 above, wind chills 21 below, northwest wind 11 to 15, with gusts up to 26. So if you get out there for some reason, you're going to be out there a little while, you want to dress in layers and be warm. Get out of that wind. Wear a hood with a snorkel on the front. And tonight, mostly clear, low 15 below, wind chill values as low as 25 below, a west wind, 8 to 13, becoming light after midnight. Saturday, chance of snow after 4 p.m., so we're good until, we're good for the day tomorrow. Partly sunny and cold, high near 10, wind chills as low as 24 below. Calm wind becoming south around 5 miles per hour in the afternoon. And then Saturday night, chance of snow before 9 p.m., then snow likely between 9 and midnight, snow with widespread blowing snow after midnight. The snow will be heavy at times, low around 3 above, wind chill factors as low as 12 below, northeast winds 7 to 17 miles an hour with gusts up to 29 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation, 90%. 3 to 5 inches in the beginning of it, And then Sunday, snow, widespread blowing snow. Snow is heavy, high near 9 above, windy, north wind 21 to 26 with gusts up to 39 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation is 100%, new snow accumulation 10 to 14 inches. So we got 3 to 5 plus 10 to 14, so that's 13 to 19. Excuse me. Sunday night. Snow, widespread blowing snow before 1 a.m., then widespread blowing snow, chance of snow after 1 a.m. The snow could be heavy at times. Wind 41 miles an hour. 
Case of precipitation, 80%. <coughs> Excuse me. Washington's birthday, partly sunny and cold with a high near 10. Blustery with northwest wind, 14 to 20 miles an hour. It's going to blow, and it's going to snow, and it's powder right to the bottom. I saw some deer tracks. Well, I better, better describe there's no tracks. Deer sign. Looks like somebody dragged a kayak out through the woods. It is deep. There is no crust, and it's powder right to the bottom. Gas price is 205 in Elliott. It was 365 today last year. So it's a dollar sixty less than it was last year. Gas price is two forty seven all over southern uh all over Madawaska. Okay, it's two oh five in Elliott, two forty seven in Madawaska, all the stations same price. The diesel price is two seventy nine in Thompson, three sixty nine in Scarborough. Now that's a ninety cents difference in diesel price. So it pays to shop. Now, the cost of producing, uh, refining and producing the final product and transporting it, it hasn't changed that much in a year's time. The problem is that petroleum products are are subject to the same rules of, of economics as as other products, supply and demand. Now, why is the demand for petroleum products down in in the world? Because it's it's a world product. They load a tanker over there in the Middle East and sails out. That tanker could change its destinations two or three times before they finally decide, well, they're going to unload in Philadelphia or Newark, New Jersey or Galveston, Texas. We're still importing some foreign oil because it's the cheapest oil at that moment in time. But uh, my son went to sea on a tanker, a Texaco tanker, one summer as a junior engineer when he was in college. And uh, they often didn't know their destination. And that was an old tanker in tough shape. It was a good ship to learn on because always something going wrong. And what they did is they brought Bunker C. When you refine oil, one barrel of oil, you start out and you the first thing that they that they heat the oil up real hot is in there's not in any presence of any oxygen otherwise you'd have an explosion and the first stuff to flash off is the butane and the propane and the other light gases and it's it's already mixed it's like a bottle of soda in that respect you take the cap off and uh there's carbon dioxide in there and if you and the carbon dioxide will will come out of the liquid. That's what makes it kind of zippy. The same thing with oil. The lighter gases are mixed in with the crude, and they they uh, they take those off first. And it's propane and butane, maybe a little methane, natural gas in there, all these light volatiles. And propane will exist as a liquid, and that's how they ship it. But it has to be pressurized. And then you get down into the lighter gasolines, the high-octane gasoline. Octane is a molecule, and it's oct. It's like octagonal. It's eight eight parts to the molecule. And they get that first. That's the high-octane, high-test gas. And then comes regular. And then 
you get down below that and you get into the really high uh, oils like kerosene. Now, clean, clear kerosene is is less volatile than gasoline, but it's more volatile than jet fuel. Then you get the high-level high jet fuel, which is JP5, that the Navy uses. It's, a, it's more bounce to the ounce. And uh, then you get JP4, which the Army used when I was in Vietnam. Everybody used JP4. It's the only fuel we had in country. That's a little bit denser, and it's a little yellower, and there's, you know, there's still some impurities in it. And then you go down through and get into the light, light lube oils, like 10-weight oil. And then you get 20 and 30 weight oil. And then you get the various blends. And as you get down more and more, next next thing you know, you're down into the, into the real heavy oils. And then then you get into uh, Bunker C. It's, uh, you get various fuel oils that they have to they have to heat it up and atomize it to blow it into a boiler. And then you get down to real real heavy oil that is used in the big power plants. That's Bunker C. And below that, eventually, the only thing left in the bottom of that barrel of oil is tar, asphalt. And they, they ship asphalt in tankers also. When, you, when the asphalt comes out to an asphalt plant, uh, it comes in, in cardboard barrels. And they peel the barrel off, and they throw this big round block of asphalt in there, and they mix it with sand to make pavement. But that's the black asphalt is is the heaviest uh, component of a barrel of crude oil. I suppose everybody just really needed to know that. But <laughs> it all comes from the same out of the same pipe out of the ground. And different parts of the world have different kinds of crude oil, and the price is based on West Texas. Sweet crude. They call it sweet because uh, it has very low sulfur, and sour is high sulfur. And the lowest sulfur actually comes out of the Bakken fields and out of Alberta, Canada. And the reason they had such a disaster up there in Quebec when the train went off the tracks is uh, is that it's a much more volatile than the usual crude oil that's shipped by rail car. And they love it over there in St. John, New Brunswick at the Irving Refinery. It's because it's the best crude. Environmentalists don't like it because it's inexpensive and it's in a, it's a, it's efficient. And environmentalists want to make life difficult for people. It's it's the way they they uh, create poverty and unemployment. And this is their goal. Strange people. And they, everything they do makes life more miserable for people. It's just the way it is. And you look at their quotes and what they write and what they publish, and and uh, it's it's their true belief. It's a religion with them. They 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 hate themselves. They hate you. They hate me. It's sort of like Muslims in that respect. You know they. They want to take the world back to a 7th century hunter-gatherer uh, tribal-type existence. That's, that will be the, if, they, if they're able to relieve, excuse me, if they are able to receive 
and reach their goals, that's what will happen. We can't let it happen. But they've got people in high places that are on their side. And they've got something called the Billionaires Club that funds them. And they just ship money around within in their organizations. It's hard to trace. But up at the top, they've got something called the Billionaires Club that, that funds it. And Donald Sussman is one of those guys. He backed Angus King's compact back around 92, 94, and that, that, that era when Angus King was flying high, white, and handsome as Maine's governor. Probably no other governor hurt Maine as badly as Angus King did. And the governor that brought in Lurick uh, was simply uh, incompetent, in my opinion. He's a very, very rich man, and he thought this would be a good idea to humor the, the Greenies, and he he established Lurick. Lurick was in there for for 40 years, and then they changed the name because Lurick was so unpopular, they changed the name to Land Use Planning Commission instead of Land Use Regulation Commission. They thought it sounded better. And then uh, nothing really changed. What they did is they made Lurick bigger, stronger, and meaner. And if you look it up, bigger, stronger, and meaner, in the Lewiston Sun Journal, you'll find my op-ed where I wrote it up. I explained how they were bigger, how they were stronger, and how they were meaner. It's still online. They may scrub it eventually, but it's there. I posted it on one of the blogs in Maine. and They were going to ban me for posting it. I said, hey. He says, you posted a copyrighted article. I said, I wrote it. I own it. It's mine. I can put it anywhere I want. Well, I can't put it on that blog. (laughs) So there is a whole lot going on in the world. We've got a blizzard coming. We're under a blizzard warning. And this is is something we have to take seriously. We we have to do that. It's dangerous. We, We... Fall into a routine, and we're we're a. Excuse me, I have a cold. I'm just getting over it, and there's no mute button on this machine. But we have a we have a uh, a blizzard warning, and we're we become a prisoner of our routines, and this is a blizzard. It's worse than the previous blizzard we had about ten, twelve days ago. This blizzard. We need to stay home. If we go out, we're going to create problems for other people. Because there are people that have to be out. We're going to have line workers out, uh, and we're going to have a, a problem where, you know, these some people have to go. I was a I was an EMT for years. I used to teach emergency medicine for the state, and uh, you know. When the phone rings, you have to go. It's like a volunteer fireman, you know. It's it's always, it's never convenient when the phone rings and somebody's got a chimney fire. You have to go to save their house for them. And you, you do that, you know. You, you do the best you can. We saved a mobile home on New Year's Day. Now, after New Year's Eve, when you get a phone call, 5.30 in the morning, New Year's Eve, 
and you save a trailer, that is remarkable because it was about eight below and the wind was blowing. And we went out there and we drew water out of the brook to, to keep the tanker full. And we, once, once you charge a hose and open the hose, you can't shut the hose off because you shut the hose off and that brass nozzle up there is going to freeze. And the water is going to freeze and you're done. You can take that nozzle off and try to put another nozzle on, but at eight below, you know, that's pretty hard to do because you can't turn it off. As soon as you shut it off, it freezes because the water coming out of that brook is 32 degrees. It doesn't take much to, to if it stops, it'll freeze. <laughs> but anyway, it's fun. That's, it's uh small town firefighting. When the, when the town of Lincoln has a fire beyond their hydrant system, they call the town of Lee. Because the town of Lee can move more water than anybody else. They have to. Because we don't have a hydrant system. We don't have a municipal water supply. And the town of Lee has done some has had some remarkable saves. Great volunteer fire department. Town of Springfield's got a brand new Kenworth that they got from the federal government. Springfield is a is a low income town in rural Maine. And they wrecked their big tanker. Uh, one of their volunteer firemen headed out to a fire out in Drew, I believe. Uh, sawmill was on fire. And uh, he went out there with the tanker, and he went around a corner and drifted off the pavement. The tires got in the soft shoulder, and he wheeled her back and went flying across the road and, and hit a pine tree, stopped dead. And that tanker sheared the bolts. The tanker came right up to the cab and and the firefighter was died. The driver was killed. And I knew the man. And uh, Peter Beebe uh, Lawson, and a uh, good man. He uh, he had 100 acres there in Springfield. And when he bought the land, he says, you know, it was a beautiful natural glade and, and uh, like a natural opening in the trees with moss on the ground, and he says, you know, he says, when I die, this is where I want to be buried, in a pine box. He's a simple man, and, and uh, lives simply, and and uh, he dies on the way to the fire. Plus, lost control of the tanker. Tank water got sloshing, and lost control, and hit, hit a pine tree, and stopped dead right there. And they made a pine box. And they dug the hole. The Springfield firemen dug his grave. I went out there with my Kubota in case they hit some rocks. And they didn't. They didn't put a rock in there bigger than a than an orange. They dug the grave, and Peter was buried right there, right where he wanted to be buried. So we got we got some good people out in the country, out in the woods, in rural Maine. And we've got to take care of each other. And this weekend is going to be a good day to hold up and stay home. Reload some ammunition. Uh, lube up your fishing reels. Do stuff. Get ready for spring. Think about spring. And, and don't venture out. I have a snowblower. And i got a Kubota tractor. Just put a new battery in it because the old battery wasn't hacking it at 10 below. Had the original battery. 
470 cold cranking amps on that battery that came with the Kubota. Most of the time, that was good. I bought a battery that had 750 cold cranking amps. And you turn the key, turn the key just a whisker further, and the glow plugs come on. Let that go for a few seconds, and it boom, took right off. Makes me smile. I'm going to be a popular guy. Got somebody coming up to a camp in Springfield, and they've asked me to blow out the driveway. I've done that before. I had one guy ran out of fuel, had a 300-pound pig for propane, and it ran out. He was heated with wood, but he wasn't feeling well, and he was using a propane heater, and all of a sudden, he had no propane. And he was in there almost half a mile in the woods, and people couldn't get in to deliver propane to the pig. So he wanted to bring the pig to, to Lincoln to get the pig filled up. So I told him, I said, see, I, said, I can drag a 100-pound tank in behind my snowmobile. So I, I need a 300 pounds. Okay. So I blew out his driveway. That was back when I had the Ford. I had to step on the clutch and, and the snowblower stops. So you've got to, when you lose the, the drive and the snowblower at the same time, you've got to plan ahead, otherwise the snowblower will plug. <laughs> so when I wanted to stop, I'd have to lift the snowblower up, let that spin for a second, then step on it and change gears, move forward and jig around and let the clutch back out, snowblower consarts up, drop a snowblower down every time, every single time. Now with the two-stage uh, transmission, I can uh, I can step on the clutch, the tractor stops, the snowblower keeps going. So if I get into some heavy stuff, it's easier to go. So I got the good battery and all ready to go, but I'm not going to go out in the middle of this and clear driveways. People, my phone will start ringing because you can't you can't push the snow back any further with a pickup, and pickups don't have wings, and the driveway gets narrower and narrower, and all of a sudden the guy can't push the snow with a pickup, and he he's either going to hire a bucket loader or snow, somebody with a snowblower. Well, I've got a bucket on the Kubota. The bucket isn't that efficient, and it's still you push it back and just make a bigger pile. With a snowblower, you blow it 30 or 40 feet out in the trees, and it looks pretty. People used to give me a hard time. I'd go in the coffee shop, and I'd look like the abominable snowman. Just go in there, get some diesel, get a coffee, back at it. So this guy's coming up. Uh, he wants a snowblower wants the driveway blown out in Springfield. You're going to be up here for a week. So when school gets out this afternoon, you're going to come up where first thing in the morning, I'm not sure which, but i got to call and find out what his plan is. But I'm going to do it today. And if he's looked at the weather forecast and decides that he doesn't want to be up here in the blizzard because, you know, he's not going to be able to run out for a quart of milk or some eggs or something, you know. He's going to have to plan to be there a while because he's going to need to be blown out again in order to get back out. That's not going to happen on Monday. I've got some other people that I'm committed to take care of. But I'm going to wait till it's over, and I know it's going to be cold. It's going to be real cold. You know, it's going to have chill factors of 20, 25 below, and you've got to dress for that. You're going to be out in it, sitting up there in a tractor seat, you just I don't have any cab on my tractor. I don't have one of those 
grandels that they have that Kubota makes, you know, heating and air conditioning and stereo and all that stuff. Where I go, I'd, I just damage it. I've got, uh, I have a brush lopper on, this, on my rear fender. So I go along to some tree branch hanging down, I reach up and I snip her off. That way I won't be knocking snow down my neck. So, there's a whole lot going on in the state of Maine. Uh, Penobscot County Republicans had their election, and they had a they had another election like the one they had two years ago. Uh, they didn't follow the rules. They elected a slate of people. There wasn't any opposition. There wasn't any point in being in opposition to what they were planning to do because Grassroots didn't have the numbers. They elected a bunch of people, and they were all very pleased. And a friend of mine, old Vic Birardelli, quit. He not only quit his position on the state committee and on the county committee, he quit the Republican Party. And there was an article yesterday, he published his op-ed that he wrote in the Bangalore Daily News. And he has had it. He just flat had it with the corruption that exists. You see, there are progressives in both parties. There are good people in both parties. You know, I know people that are Democrats. Their grandfather was a Democrat. Their father was a Democrat. And their mother was a teacher. And they just, you know, they identify with the Democrat Party. But they didn't vote for Barack Obama. And they didn't vote for Mike Mishu, but they're still registered as Democrats. They hunt and they fish and they got a four-wheel drive pickup and they have a camp somewhere and they're outdoorsmen. They belong to the NRA, but they're registered as Democrats. I don't understand it. And now we've got people that came out of the woods when Paul LePage ran the first time and he said he was going to do away with Lurk. People came out of the woods and they registered to vote. And I, I know one man in his 60s. He never voted in his life. He's they're all a bunch of crooks. I don't want any part of it. And he has never voted in his whole life. And he came out and registered to vote so he could vote in the primary to get Paul LePage on the ballot. And he voted for Paul LePage. And and it's people like that that are the heart and soul of our country. I mean, they really want the best for our country, and they understand that there is corruption in the system. The corruption exists in both parties. And if you've got a copy of yesterday's Bangor Daily News, open it up to the editorial page, and you'll see Vic Berardelli's resignation letter. Vic was was part of the, he was leader of the Republican Liberty Caucus. I mean, the man believes in liberty. And I believe in liberty. And people like Vic and Blaine Richardson give me a hard time sometimes because I'm still in the Republican Party. I'm the town chair. I belong to the county committee. I've been on the state committee several times over the years, get on and off various times, but I've been on the state committee. And I was on the executive committee of the state committee for a while. And I understand the system. 
I understand how it could work, I understand how it should work, and I understand how it does work. And they say, why do you stay? I said, I stay to bear witness. Bearing witness is a burden. Like the old timers, when our country was country was founded, they bore witness. After Lexington, a man ran from Lexington Green, where eight Americans were shot and killed by the Redcoats, and a bunch more wounded on Lexington Green as they marched through. And they headed out to to uh, Concord from there. And a man ran from Lexington Green to Concord, about six miles. And he ran into town breathless and said, told what had happened at Lexington Green. Oftentimes, the Redcoats would fire blanks. They'd load their muskets and cock them, and they'd fire a volley with no ball just to scare people and threaten them. It was effective. It did scare people, and they would disperse. That's how that was part of their crowd control. But at the Boston Tea Party a few years earlier, they 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 loaded with ball and they did kill some Bostonians there in the city. And that was known as the Boston Massacre. It was the first time that they'd done that. The first time that they'd drawn blood that way. So. The guy ran into into uh, Concord, the man who had been on Lexington Green and witnessed what happened. And when they first fired, he turned and he ran toward Concord and to, no, to notify him. He didn't know that Paul Revere and the others were, were out in the countryside, you know, notifying everybody. He wanted to make sure that Concord was notified. So he ran into Concord and they said, he was asked, are they firing balls? <coughs> Excuse me. Are they firing ball? He said, I do not know for certain, but I think it's so. And that's what he knew. He thought so, but he wasn't absolutely sure. And that's the message he told. He bore witness. He told what he had actually witnessed. And what we witnessed at the Penobscot County Republican election of officers two years ago was that the whole bunch of people came in and voted who were not on the county committee. It was wrong. It was corrupt. It was flagrantly illegal. And it was done. And the county chair was elected fraudulently and the county chair served fraudulently for two years. And a lot of people walked away. It made the progressives happy. Vic Fiordelli is a, is a rock-solid, patriotic politician. He understands politics. He gives classes. He wrote a book on it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a great loss to the Republican Party. He was an activist. He worked hard for candidates. I'm an activist. I worked hard for candidates. And, you know, I'm not saying all the candidates are perfect, but they're worthy of our support, many of them. Some are not worthy of our support, and I actively oppose those people. And it's, it's, I regard it as a duty as a citizen 
And we have a lot of bad stuff going on in our country. We've got, uh, there's a, a, a YouTube video out, and it's been, you've seen it. If you look at Fox News, you've seen clips of it, of of uh, Barack Obama uh, taking videos of himself with an iPhone. And he, you know, he's playing around, and he's, what he's trying to do is attract young voters who are Internet savvy. And it's like Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Well, there were no violins back then, but when they say Nero was fiddling, they're talking about a small harp. You can play a harp, a handheld harp. There's pictures or drawings and even statues of of the Emperor Nero playing his harp while the Visigoths are coming across the river to to, to, uh, attack Rome. Rome had fallen apart. And, and and it was a disaster for the Roman Empire. But they were corrupt, and they deserved to fail. Our nation is corrupt. And we are coming up to have a real big adjustment, socially, politically, and economically. And it's coming. There is no doubt about it. And people talk about prophecy. Well, when we had a civil war in our country, we lost a half a million people. We lost 58,000 men in the Vietnam War. And uh, I've got three roommates on 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 that black wall and a hole in the ground down there in D.C. And, you know, I've been in places. And I've seen destruction, I've seen evil, and I've seen the results of incompetence and corruption. And two days ago, we left and abandoned our embassy in Yemen. And the U.S. Marines in the U.S. Embassy were ordered to surrender their weapons to radical Islamic terrorists. Think about that. I've never, never imagined that this could happen. And there is a a Navy retired, uh, let's see, what is he? Yeah, Joseph R. John, United States Naval Academy, 1962, captain in the U.S. Navy, retired. And he's the chairman of Combat Veterans for Congress. Trying to trying to get combat veterans to run for Congress because those veterans who have been in combat uh, have an understanding that other veterans don't have. It's an experience. It's a valuable experience, and they have an outlook on life. And they tend to be no nonsense people, and with a low tolerance of BS, if you will. And that's that's me. I have a low tolerance of BS, but you have to get in their face, and you have to point out evil and perfidy. You don't hear the word perfidy very often. Look it up. But this this retired Navy captain, Joseph John, wrote an op-ed concerning the influence of Valerie Jarrett, 
Valerie Jarrett runs the White House. And the pictures that are on TV today of Barack Obama show the real Barack Obama playing around, giggling, taking. He's an immature person, and uh, he's he's a fraud. I mean, he's been we knew he was a fraud eight years ago when he was in Congress, you know, and when he before that when he was in the Illinois legislature as a senator, he didn't vote. He went there and he he voted present. He took no positions. And when he was told not to, I mean, he's this guy has been brought along from the beginning. And I've told mentioned last week that, you know, he had two roommates, uh, the Chandu brothers, in Barack. They were they, he was groomed and brought along throughout his life. The reason he bent down and kissed the ring of the Saudi king with a bunch of other heads of state present. I mean, there's photographs of him bowing down and kissing the ring of the king of Saudi Arabia. Well, the king of Saudi Arabia paid his tuition in Harvard. So, he, you know, <laughs> this guy was brought along, and the progressives put him in there, and there he is in the White House. So the Marines and all of all Americans had to get out of Yemen. Yemen, by the way, is is the port where uh, where the USS Cole was was blown up. And they brought it home. They brought the whole coal home on a floating dry dock back to the United States and fixed it. Just like they brought some badly damaged ships back to the United States during World War II. So, these Marines, uh, they evacuated a bunch of Americans, but we couldn't bring any help. We had, we had amphibious troops offshore, but they couldn't come in there because the Yemeni Army Forces and the, were too powerful. So, if they'd have gone in, they'd have been shot down. So, the Houthis are, are a terrorist group in Yemen. They've been accepting military and logistics support from the Shiite Iranian Republican Guard, which is the most radical of the Iranians. Saudi Arabia has been supporting the elected government of Yemen with less than adequate support from the Obama administration. In November 11, the Houthis took control of two Yemeni governments, which is two provinces of Yemen, with strong support from Iran. By May of 2012, the Houthis controlled most of Sa'ada, Al-Jawaf, and Haja governments, more counties or more provinces. They gained access to the Red Sea in order that Iran could provide military and logistics support via the Red Sea. By September 21, 2014, the Houthis were in control of parts of the Yemen capital of Sana'a, including government buildings and a radio station. A U.S. Marine Ready Group was positioned off the coast of Yemen in order to be able to evacuate U.S. Embassy personnel and the U.S. Marine contingent. Last month, the Houthis took control of the capital with the help of the Shiite Iranian Republican Guard. As a result, more U.S. Marines were deployed to the embassy to reinforce the U.S. Marine contingent in place. Now, I'm going to take a break here because I've been in that situation. Not many talk radio people have actually done this. 
But and you can't tell a story like this if you don't have pictures. I have pictures. I have slides that I took. The Dominican Republic had a revolution back in 65 in May. And I got a phone call and said, grab your stuff and take your helicopter and go. And I flew to the USS Newport News, which is a cruiser. And there were two pilots. And uh, But this helicopter can only fly one pilot at a time. It's the smallest helicopter that the Navy had. And that's what they needed to fly into that embassy because there were 14-foot walls around the embassy and trees and obstructions, and it's right in the middle of the capital, Santo Domingo. And they had one individual they wanted to take out of there. And he was a major, uh, he was a uh, Colonel uh, Tompkins, U.S. Marine Corps bird colonel. And the reason they wanted him out of there is that he had been uh, in Supreme Allied Headquarters European Forces in Brussels, Belgium, NATO. He was the top guy in NATO for the United States. And that was called SHAFE, Supreme Headquarters European Allied Headquarters uh, Forces. And they did not want the communists to capture him. And Fidel Castro and his, and his brother Raul and some of the characters down there in Cuba, uh, Che Guevara, had given the college students 25,000 AK-47s. That's a lot of AK-47s. And they said, revolt. And they did. They didn't have much of a plan. They had very little command and control and poor communications. But 25,000 irate communist college students with 25,000 AK-47s didn't have one hell of a riot. And that's what the revolution was. And they would have been successful if they had good communications and good command and control. They just simply did not. But they wanted uh, Colonel Tompkins out of there. And my job was to fly in, pick him out, and take him out, back out to the ship. And he did not want to leave. He was given a direct order by Sink, Sink, uh, Sinkland, Commander-in-Chief of the Atlantic Fleet, you go, you leave there. He did not want to leave his Marines behind. And I went, flew in there, and I picked him up, and I flew him out to the ship. And... The first trip in wasn't that bad. I went in there at 1,500 feet, and I split the needles, which being a helicopter means you shut the engine off, and not completely off. You bring it back down to idle, and you use the wind rushing up through the rotor system to keep the rotors spinning, and it's called auto-rotation. And I corkscrewed down from 1,500 feet down into the courtyard of that embassy. When I passed through 600 feet on the way down, I about lost my breakfast because there were 2,500 dead civilians in the streets and it was about 100 degrees. And Mr. Man, that capital was ripe. It would gag a maggot. And I went in there and I just, you know, I just did not understand, did not know that that, that was the situation in the capital. I knew it was bad. I just didn't. <laughs> it was the smell. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Anyway. I uh, I didn't lose my breakfast. 
but I was very surprised, and I told the other pilot. Uh, we took turns flying. Uh, Matty Gash was the other pilot. He's retired Navy, lives in Florida, and he's a he teaches uh, student aviators down there. He's an instructor. He has a retired Navy and civilian, a lot of retired military instructors in Pensacola. So I I flew out to the ship and landed and shut down. And I figured, well, that's that. And Vice Admiral Masterson came out. Now, this guy, Vice Admiral in the Navy, is a big shot. You know, he's right up. Uh, his next step below Fleet Admiral, which is charge of the whole Atlantic Fleet. He's he's number two man. He came out and uh, shook my hand. He says, good job. And uh, how was it? I, I told him about about the smell and the, all the dead civilians and all that stuff. At that time, I didn't know there were that many. turns out there were about 2,500 dead people in the streets. And you couldn't go out in the street and to pick up your dead relatives because somebody would shoot you. So it was, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was bad. So then uh, he says, well, it's good job, good job. He says, can you do it again? <laughs> and I've got a picture of me standing there with Vice Admiral Masterson with a map laying on top of the bollard. Now, a bollard is a great big winch on a ship that they used to, to winch which the mooring lines in when you're coming into port, and you wrap the wrap the lines around them, and this winch pulls it in. This it's a big flat top steel thing about the size of a coffee table, and uh, and at that moment somebody took my picture with Vice Admiral Masterson, and he said, "Can you do it again?" And I'm looking like, "Uh-oh, yes, sir, I can do it again." And I went in. Matty Gash and I took turns, and I went into that embassy, and Matty went into the embassy. We took turns. I would fly several trips into the embassy and back out again. Didn't take any Marines. Marines stayed there. But I took civilians out and uh, from the embassy, out to the ship, and when I needed to refuel, I'd shut down. Matty Gash would take the helicopter and start it up, and he'd fly in. And I told him, I said, you know, Stay away from this area. Stay away from that area. A lot of people shooting there. Now, I don't know where they're going to be half an hour from now, but you know, stay away from here. Stay away from there. The Marines are up there on the walls, keep keeping the revolutionaries away from the embassy. And uh, Matty would fly in, and then he'd come back. He said, "You want to stay away from there? His best approach is from the west over the polo field. They had a polo field right outside. Polo field is about four or five times the size of a football field." Nobody there shooting at you. So we'd come in over one end of the polo field or the other end. Sometimes we'd come in from the municipal airport end because that's a big open area. You want to stay over the most open areas you can because those who won't be shooting at you. (laughs) Anyway, after doing this for a while, the ship baked a cake and celebrated 100 landings on the deck because they'd never done that before. And it was a cruiser, and it wasn't designed for helicopter operations. They had fuel, but there was no hangar. You know, it just was a big cruiser that, when that thing was designed, there was no intent to put helicopters on it. And they had a teak deck, a wooden deck. And we'd go out there, and they'd put a drip pan under the helicopter because they didn't want to get any oil on their teak deck. 
it was it was just the strangest incongruous time. And then the USS Boxer got there, and uh, they came in with Hueys and bigger helicopters, and gradually the the Marines and the and the Dominican Army were able to push back the the uh, the communists and the the whole revolution lasted about six weeks and we left i mean i was only there for eight or ten days and they wanted the newport news back in in uh in norfolk and uh we went we went home the commanding officer called called down and he sent the sent a yeoman down yeoman is a is like a secretary or a clerk in the navy and he came down and he says he said Captain Tonkovic wants you up in his office right now. Said, okay, this is usually not a good thing. So I ran up to the office and, and I had my flight suit on because I was, I was a test pilot. I've been flying test, you know, helicopters. And uh, I went in there and he says, Maddie was there. Maddie was dressed in his regular uniform. And what did you guys do down there in the Republic? I says, Well, we told you we. Gave you the report, and we flew a whole lot. You know, he said, oh, well, what else? I said, well, but he said, we bent the rules. <laughs> I said, yeah, what else? Well, you know, <laughs> we told him some of the details that we hadn't put in the report. And he says, you guys be here next Wednesday at 0800 in your best dress whites. Yeah. Vice Admiral Masterson has put you guys in for the air medal. Nobody in that squadron ever got an ear medal before because that wasn't the squadron mission, you know, at that time. It was a utility squadron and combat support squadron, but, you know, they were kind of in the background. This, we had the only helicopter that could do that job at that time. So, back to the embassy in Yemen. And this rings home with me because I understand I've been in that situation. So on January 20th, 2015, the Houthi radical Islamic terrorists took over the presidential palace, which had happened in Santo Domingo back then, more than 40 years ago. In fact, it's 50 years this year. It was, it was 65, it's 50 years ago. President Abed Rabu Mansur Hadi remained at the presidential palace during the takeover, and then 18 days later, on February 6th, the Houthis, with the help of the Iranian Republican Guard, took control of the entire Yemeni government, dissolving the elected parliament, and declared that its revolutionary committee was now the ruling authority in Yemen. And then on the the 11th, which is two days ago, instead of sending the U.S. Marines in from pre-positioned ships by helicopters, in order to evacuate the U.S. Marines from the U.S. Embassy, along with all U.S. weapons from the U.S. Embassy, the State Department ordered the U.S. Marines to destroy all the weapons in the embassy except for their own personal rifles. The U.S. Marines were then ordered to remove the firing pins from their personal rifles before they were allowed to transport to the airport for evacuation. The U.S. Marine contingent was ordered by the U.S. State Department to board transportation vehicles controlled by the Houthi terrorists so they could be driven to the airport. En route to the airport, they came under enemy fire with no way to defend themselves. 
When they got to the airport, in order to be permitted to leave, they were told to turn in their personal rifles. U.S. Marines are trained to never surrender their weapons. No U.S. military aircraft were employed to pick up the Marines and depart them from Yemen. Private aircraft were hired by the U.S. State Department to fly the U.S. Marines out of Yemen. My God. I can't believe it. Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett has worked her third time in a row, facilitated the turnover of a third U.S. embassy in a row to give effective control of those embassies to Iran, Syria, Libya, and Yemen. Iran has effectively neutralized the Shiite government of Iraq, has replaced the U.S. as the most influential nation with the Iraqi government. The Iranians, with the help of Jarrett, are planning to eventually take control of the government in Afghanistan. The Iranian Republican Guard has been assisting the Taliban in killing U.S. military personnel by providing the Taliban with Iran-manufactured IEDs and has been supplying the Taliban with logistic and weapon support for six years, ever since Barack Obama took office. For many years... Iran has been investigating Shiites' demonstrations in the streets in Bahrain and their attempt to destabilize the government of Bahrain. Hezbollah and the Iranian Republican Guard have formed a joint military combat command and are engaging ISIL in combat in Iraq. The Iranian Republican Guard and Hezbollah have been involved in joint military operations in Lebanon against the pro-Western government and against Israel for six years since Barak took office. Obama and Jarrett are supplying U.S. weapons and logistic support to only the Shiites in Iraqi military, the military effectively controlled by Iran. The Kurds, the Assyrian Christians, and the Sunni tribes are being oppressed by Iraq that require weapons and logistic support have not been delivered by the Iraqi military as required. They've been held back by Iraq and Iran. The King of Jordan recently traveled to Washington with his hat in his hand to ask for weapons and logistic support in person. He was previously promised to Jordan by Obama, but never delivered. Now, bear in mind that Barack Hussein Obama gave a whole squadron of F-16s to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. A squadron! What do you suppose they're going to be used for? Iran has been the most dangerous power of terrorism in the world for 36 years. It has been responsible for killing thousands of Americans for 36 years. And for over two years, the Obama State Department, with Valerie Jarrett's guidance, has been in ineffective negotiations with Iran to supposedly prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Secretary Kerry's style of negotiations is allowing the Iranians to extend negotiations, which is allowing them to develop and manufacture nuclear material. The Middle East is in flames because of Obama and Hillary's lack of an intelligent foreign policy over the last six years. Kerry is further destabilizing the Middle East because his negotiations are facilitating Iran's development of nuclear weapons. If Iran does develop nuclear weapons, it will result in a dagger thrust aimed at the heart of Israel, at the heart of U.S. allies in the Middle East, and will plunge the Middle East into a nuclear arms race. 
as you probably know, Valerie Jarrett is President Obama's most trusted advisor. And this, these are her words. Valerie Jarrett, who is the de facto President of the United States because Obama doesn't know what he's doing. This is Obama's handler. She writes, I am an Iranian by birth and of my Islamic faith. I am also an American citizen, and I seek to help change America to be a more Islamic country. My faith guides me, and I feel like it is going well in the transition of using freedom of religion in America against itself. Valerie Jarrett. She wrote this. She spoke this. She is a Muslim, and she is in the White House, and she controls the White House and what the White House does. Wake up, America. Wake up. You can't make this stuff up. I was going to speak about Common Core this week until I found out what happened in Yemen. And I just had to tell this story. Because I've been there. and I've done that. And I've seen what happens with communism and tyranny, whether it's communists or the Islamofascists, they all they want us they want de, they want us to be defeated as a nation. They want to ruin our country. And Valerie Jarrett and people like Eric Holder are tearing our country apart. David Axelrod was a powerful man. He was he was Obama's right-hand man. And Obama's right-hand lady was, of course, Valerie Jarrett. But David Axelrod is not a Muslim. David Axelrod is a Democrat Party hack who had come up through the ranks, and he slid into the White House, and he was an advisor to Barack Obama. David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel, okay, tangled. And Dave, Rahm Emanuel uh, tangled with Valerie Jarrett. Well, Rahm Emanuel lost out. He's gone. He was sent, sent home to Chicago. He ran for mayor. He's now the mayor of Chicago, which is a very, very lucrative position. You, you can become a very rich man as mayor of Chicago, as, as the Dailies have, father and son. Rahm Emanuel is set. He's okay. But he lost out in the White House to Valerie Jarrett. She is the real power. And she essentially runs this country today. Valerie Jarrett selects and approves all of the czars. And she keeps a low profile. I could go on for the rest of the morning, but it's 10 o'clock straight up. So this is it. This is the end of the Northern Maine Landman Show for Friday the 13th. I'm not superstitious, but it is it is they say it is quite a quite a situation to have stuff like this in our country on Friday the 13th. And you know, as I said at the outset, I don't believe in luck. I believe in divine providence. People say, well, there's good luck and bad luck. Well, we're going to run into a stretch of what some people would call bad luck. 
and I would call it righteous retribution. This has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ 94.7 Monticello, and all the way down to Danforth. Man, is it going to snow in Danforth. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.